0: Well, welcome again to another Invested Investor. This time we have David Gill, who I've known for about seven or eight years, and I've learned a lot from him during the period. I was a coach on one of his programmes, a mentor some years ago. So, David, give us an idea about your background.
1: My name's David Gill. I'm the Managing Director of the St John's Innovation Centre here in Cambridge. This is the 10th year I've been Managing Director. The centre itself is now in its 31st year. And we claim to be the oldest technology incubator in Europe. I've been saying that for 10 years. My predecessor Walter Harriet said it for 18 years, and nobody's contradicted us, so I think it must be true. The Innovation Center has a sweet spot that I call late-stage startup. In other words, most of the companies that come here have probably already spent time somewhere like Ideaspace. They've got the basics of the team together. They've got a plan. They know what the product is. And they've probably got the first investment from an angel or a grant fund or similar. So when they move in here, they're head down. And over maybe four, maximum five years in general, they will grow from, let's say, three people to 15, sometimes 25, at which point we have to gently suggest they move elsewhere because we are here for the early stage companies, And the companies that we most like to see here are those who are seeking to exploit some form of innovation commercially. It doesn't have to be technology. But given that this is Cambridge, the vast majority are going to be in engineering, hardware, software. We have a few life science companies, but not many. The centre isn't really designed to have the right sort of laboratory space, but some companies do like to use us for office space. And we also have an internal rule that up to one in five of the companies here can be a relevant service provider, which means that usually at any given time, there's a, maybe a specialist law firm, a management accountancy firm, a design agency, a PR agency, and their services tend to be used quite a lot by the innovative firms. And the service providers understand the constraints that innovators have if you are a law firm, you can't do the sort of thing that city law firms do and just let the clock run, for instance. Okay. Obviously you've you got some slow
0: signs of grey hair. You've mm-hmm. been doing it, you've said, for 10 years. What happened before that?
1: Oh, gosh, my path to where I am now is a, a very crooked one. My guilty secret that I try not to tell the tenants in this building because I might lose immediate kudos with them is that my undergraduate degree here at Cambridge was in English. And in some ways that was because I was uh, in rebellion. I'd been sent to a French school and my act of defiance was to go back to my English roots. But I very soon had to give up any ideas that I would um, become an English donor or anything like that and I qualified as a barrister. Shortly after qualifying, the city was going through major reform and I wrote a few letters and ended up working in corporate finance first for an American bank and then for HSBC. And it was working at HSBC after a few years, I realised that the the world of the quoted company didn't seem particularly intellectually satisfying. And instead, I uh, got asked to help set up the um, marketing department of the corporate bank. Quite why a recycled lawyer would be sent to marketing, I don't know. When was um, this in the this late was, 80s? Oh, by then, it was... Um, <clears throat> It was the early 90s, so it was just after the, the recession, 92 or so. And in that recession, I was mainly doing workouts, which was, I, I think, one of the most invaluable educations I ever had. It workouts? Um, trying to turn around companies that had got into difficulty. And sometimes we succeeded, sometimes we didn't. I think where we tended to succeed was with the smaller quoted companies where we could do a deal with the investors to get more equity in. But that was an extraordinary business education at the downturn of the early 90s. Going right. back to the marketing department, one of my main responsibilities was to liaise with the regulators, government departments, people like that. And round about 1995 or 96, the Bank of England was doing a major piece of work on what they call new technology-based small firms. I got suckered into working on it with them. And when the report came out... I did the thing you should never do in a big company, which is I wrote a cover note right up to main board level saying, This is really exciting, I think we should do something about it. And after several weeks, the handwritten note came back from the, the CEO that basically said, I paraphrase, if you're so clever, go and sort it out. So I went around the marketing department trying to recruit the other people who were a little bit jaded with doing big company work and who wanted to get involved with startups and technology. I think back then we didn't really distinguish amongst ourselves anything entrepreneurial counted as innovative as far as we were concerned. And over the next seven years that that I ran the innovation technology unit for HSBC, we built up a national network of managers in what we saw as the technology hotspots in the UK, Edinburgh, Bristol, Manchester, Newcastle, obviously, Oxford, Cambridge, London, Bristol and so forth. And we also entered into long-term sponsorship agreements with two universities, Brunel for Engineering and the University of York for Life Sciences, where there was a, in each case, an HSBC sponsored professor of innovation who helped us assess proposals as they came in and also helped us train the people around the bank in the importance of innovation. Not because you were ever going to have hundreds of managers in a large organization like a bank who were innovative. But it was part of the cultural shift, trying to make them see that new ideas matter. Just because something doesn't fit the mould doesn't mean you have to say no. There are other places you can turn to and so forth. And this was up till when? About 2000 or 2001? Um, I left in 2004.
0: Okay, so you went through the bust,
1: did you? Yes, very much so. And in 1999, I was very lucky to have received a travel bursary from the Gatsby Foundation to spend basically a month in the United States going from technology hotspot to technology hotspot, interviewing people about how does this wonderful ecosystem work. And that led to a publication called Funding Technology, Lessons from America, that came out about two weeks before the, the markets crashed. <laughs> it was a, a relatively slim publication, and I think the fundamentals of what it said were still true, but the timing was awful, mm. and that's mm. probably quite an important lesson for investors as well. So you learnt a huge
0: amount during that period, a huge amount. You met all kinds of entrepreneurs. We'll talk about some of that later. O4, you moved on to something else, did you?
1: Yes, I'd been getting itchy feet. I think despite the fact that Nicole's, Nobody in HSBC really understood what we did. We were given quite a lot of free reign. I thought the fun was going to be on the other side of the table. I hadn't quite defined in my own mind whether that would be as a a venture investor or or as an entrepreneur. But I knew I had to tunnel out from the corporate world. And my tunnel was to go to Stanford Business School in California as a Sloan program to do the Masters of Science in Management. And that was one of the best years of my life. It was a year course. Right? It was a year okay. course, okay. yeah. So we were known by the MBA students with whom we were co-located. We were all known as the, the old guys. because <laughs> Their average age, I think, was 27, and our average age was about 38. And It meant that I was getting the essence of a business graduate degree crushed down into one year in the middle of Silicon Valley, and you shared some courses with them, and, and we some shared not. some courses yeah, okay. with, with the MBAs, yes, indeed. Yeah, excellent. And I took every elective that I could that related to entrepreneurship or venture capital right. or early stage investment. And then you didn't stay. I think with the weather there and the buzz there. <laughs> well, I think it was partly because the place that I'd enjoyed working in most when I ran the team at HSBC was Cambridge, and I probably had a slightly rosy tinted view of just how. Big and powerful and impressive, Cambridge was compared to Silicon Valley. Yes, and I don't think this is this is retrospective wisdom. I did have a sense that when I graduated, which was July '05, that the markets were overheating again.
0: Mm, okay.
1: It was a sense that um, companies like Facebook, which had only just been founded eighteen months, two years before, were raising stupid amounts of money. And I knew that I'm probably on the sort of conservative side of investment. You're a banker. I was a a banker and a (laughs) lawyer. But I looked at those sort of proposals and I thought I just don't understand Mm. how they were ever either going to do anything that's any good or make any money. So I felt, let's go back to Cambridge where there will be some element of sanity. And you came back to a role? I did, because one of the responsibilities I'd had at HSBC was running the very small fund-of-fund operations. HSBC had invested, I can't remember exactly how much now, I think it was 30 million, and had been matched by the European Investment Fund in nine seed capital funds, one of which was based in Cambridge, ET Capital. Oh, yes. And I'd worked quite closely with Martin Rigby, the founder, and he lured me back saying, we've got this fund that we can still carry on investing, we've got this portfolio of exciting companies, and Cambridge is the place to be. So how old was ET Capital at that point before oh, you joined it? In 05, I think it had been going for a dozen years. It started shortly before the dot-com, so yes, it would have been about '95, '96. So it probably had a couple yes. of scores of investors Yes, indeed, yeah. because there were three separate portfolios, and some of the companies were mainstream Cambridge technology firms that you would have heard about, like Bango, which, oh, yes. which yeah. was quoted, quoted, now. Yeah. quoted now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, E.T. Capital had taken over managing a portfolio of early-stage funds where most of the investors, most of the limited partners, were Cambridge colleges or high-net-worth individuals. And that brought us into uh, companies like Plastic Logic, Mm. also into a company called Spirogen, which was an oncology company, which turned out to be one of the biggest successes and is still going great guns. So it was an exciting portfolio to work with. I think another example of timing, though, is because we were almost fully invested. One of my missions was to try and raise a new fund. Right. And we were really quite close to doing that by the time the the great financial crash happened. So timing, once again, is, is all, yeah. So you worked
0: with Martin there for three and a half years. Before you came before here came to here. St. John's. Yeah. Okay. So this podcast is aimed at people entrepreneurs and angels. So let's talk more about some of the journeys that you've been on, both at ET Capital. Obviously, you didn't invest much at that point, probably nothing except follow-on rounds. And secondly, the many journeys you see going on here in the building in St. John's Innovation Centre. Because what we want to do is to give the listeners a view of the mistakes they should avoid
1: and how to achieve better success. Right. I think one of the big lessons I've learned is how difficult it is for entrepreneurs at the early stage to get the story across. And that doesn't necessarily have to be because the technology is complicated. From that, I think one of the best things that we do here at St. John's is work with companies, not necessarily companies in the building, but more widely across Greater Cambridge. So that they are at the point where they can articulate the elevator pitch, you know, the, the one or three minute story that explains to anybody who might be of concern to you, whether that's an investor or a potential recruit or a potential customer, exactly what it is you do. What is the problem you solve? How big is it? Why is it you? Why do you matter? And often I think the question that they leave out is, let's say I'm the entrepreneur and you're the investor. What do I want from you? Is it that I need a quarter of a million because I'm recruiting people or because I've got to expand overseas? Is it that I don't quite so much want your money, but I want your expertise? And if I've managed to articulate that, I should then also articulate what's in it for you. This is a really exciting proposal, and in five years' time, you will make a lot of money. Or here's your opportunity to build yet another business, whatever it may be, but you have to explain what's in it for the, the investor or the other stakeholder. Yes. I mean, of course, you don't
0: just always need external investment. Customers actually make quite good investees indirectly because you've got product market fit there as well.
1: Yes. And I think quite often when we're talking to the early stage entrepreneurs, there's that agonizing decision to make of can you hang on long enough until you've actually got some sales? Because if you do that, not only might it reduce greatly the need for external investment, but it will improve the valuation because although... Not all early-stage orders are validation. If you're building up a reasonable book, I think that's something that's a potential investor that, That's a say.
0: great point. We ought to take that slightly further, because I feel very strongly a single order from a large corporate is not to a good startup enough. is not validation at all. People no. think, I've won an order for 10,000 pounds say, from British Telecom. Well, that's worth something. But no, in many cases, it's just they're investigating
1: the technology and the team. Indeed, and they can afford to take a, a portfolio approach. They will mm-hmm. try many different new suppliers. And we've seen it, And um, there's, there's one company in this building that uh, has now got a very good relationship with a number of the large uh, US hardware corporations. But in its early days, it was overjoyed to receive an order from you know, one of the largest companies in the world. And it assumed that, that meant it was home and dry. That was the beginning of their problems, not least because the Fortune 500 company took so long to pay. And cash is king. Yes. Yeah.
0: Let's just talk about syndicate room for a moment because we've interviewed Gonzalo before and I'm an early investor, but you're more than an investor. You're also a board member. First of all, how did you meet Gonzalo? Why did you get involved? Why are you still involved? What value are you adding?
1: I met Gonzalo because so many people that I know in the investment community kept saying, you've really got to meet Gonzalo. He's got this great idea and it will solve so many of the early-stage investment problems. So when we did finally meet, it was on those chemistry things. I immediately clicked with him. I thought, here is somebody who understands his own proposition inside out, who can articulate it with great clarity. And I was with two or three other potential investors at the time. we gave him a a fairly difficult interrogation. He remained completely cool and completely convincing all the way through. So that was the background. I took the view that it was worth being more actively involved than simply being an investor, exciting as that is, because I still think that the business model that Syndicate Room has got will go a very long way towards solving a long-term conundrum in UK early-stage investment. How do you enable funding rounds to be closed where the core of your investors haven't got enough funds Amongst them, it could be three or four people who've each decided to put in 20, 30, 40,000, but you still need that last 100,000 to close it. And on the other hand, it's one of those ways in which the novice, the newbie investor, can learn by seeing how people with a great deal more experience go about it. And I I think, given that um, early stage investment is much more of a craft than a science than a black, art it's almost. a black art. You've got, to, you've got to learn by working with other people. Yes. And I, th- I think Syndicate Room has really got the scope to make that happen on a big scale.
0: And you've been on the board since, I think about the time I, I invested. Think, I
1: think about the time you invested, yeah, What
0: yes. do you think you've added to that
1: board? Clearly you have, but I just want you to say that. I think probably what I bring to it is a longer-term perspective. And that's having been involved in this world for more than 20 years. I mean, going back to the mid-90s, I was a non-executive director of what was then called Link, the local investment networking company, which brought together the syndicates of syndicates of business angels around the UK. So I think it's partly having that experience to say, although your solution on paper looks good, here are some practical things that might need to be implemented to make it work. The other thing I think is complementarity. And this would be even more true of founder teams than it is of non-execs. There are three of us who are non-executive directors and we each bring a different perspective to it. So the, the chairman, Tim Bellis, is very much a chairman. He's somebody who can take the view in the round. And, who and he was a senior detail. lawyer, wasn't he? Yes. And our third non-exec is one of the major investors in syndicate from Jonathan Milner. Who has an entrepreneurial Who has career. an entrepreneurial so. career. And I think because... Several of his previous companies have really made it to the major league and become publicly quoted. He is instilling at the early stages of the syndicate room that view of you need to start as you mean to finish. In other words, you need to run yourself as a company with ambition, with process, with transparency, with integrity right from day one. Good. No, that's been great.
0: So that is obviously on a successful rise at the moment. We'll come back in a few years' time and decide whether it was a success or not. (laughs) Let's just talk about some failures. Obviously, you may not want to be too specific about that, but the listeners are very keen, we found, in the anecdotes about the failures because they then show what they should be looking
1: at to avoid. I can think of about 10 companies in which I've invested without actually having to look anything up and several of them are still going and going strong, and I'm an arm's-length investor, and that's fine. There seems to be a bit of a pattern where I've got it wrong, and some of it is to do with having distance from the company. My second biggest failure was in a US startup set up by one of my business school classmates, and it's based in San Diego, so it breaks rule one. I can't actually go and see it more than about once a year it breaks rule two because I invested in John on the basis of a personal relationship rather than because I'd actually investigated his idea in great detail. And I think it breaks rule three in that it's in a domain that I wouldn't claim to have any expertise. He has allegedly found a way of making how the US real estate market works much more efficiently. And I don't really come from a real estate background, despite managing a building, and I certainly don't understand how the US regulations work. The company is still going, but it has had so many funding rounds that even though I put in an amount of money that would give me a very, very nice new car if I had it back... I think I'd be lucky to see 10 cents on the dollar eventually. Right, because of A, dilution, and B,
0: some down rounds, I suspect, on that route. Yes. But you probably invested in that over 10 years ago, did you?
1: I did. So even if I got my initial capital back, when you take into account the time value of money, yeah, I've gone from having a very nice car to um, a reasonable yeah. car. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> So that's good, actually. You've just mentioned three rules there, so distance... The fact you did it on a personal relationship, either part of the family, friends and fools, possibly the fool part of that, or certainly the friend part of that, not family, and then lacking domain skills. So does that set of rules, have you broken them one or more of those in any of the other ones you wouldn't class as successors?
1: Yes, I think that my biggest failure of all, which was painfully large, was involved in entertainment and social media. And I don't think even my closest friends would say that I have much understanding of either of those markets. So although I was a big investor and was on the board for quite a while, I think it was probably more to do with personal relationship than
0: with understanding of the sector. So distance, probably in that case, you didn't break the rule. Family, friends, you might have done. And domain knowledge, you definitely did. Absolutely. Okay. You've obviously helped a lot with the syndicate room journey. You've also been on other boards, haven't you? How have you helped those entrepreneurs?
1: I think particularly when I was the representative of ET Capital on a couple of the boards on which I served for two or three years, I felt the role of the investor was much more like that of a coach or mentor than simply somebody who was there to monitor. And in retrospect, it seems slightly hubristic to say that I felt I had more experience than the founders, but probably simply by having been around a cohort of companies at HSBC over a dozen years, and having been to business school in California, I did have some insights to impart. And part of that, I think, is enabling them to maintain confidence. There's a strange thing about entrepreneurial psychology that you almost have to have a skewed view of the world. I mean if you looked at the statistics, you probably never leave the day job and start up a business because pick a number somewhere between 70 and 90% of new startups never get beyond year five. On the other hand, if it weren't for entrepreneurs having a strong sense of self-belief and being prepared to take advice and guidance, whether it's from their investors, whether it's from their peer group of previous founders, then we wouldn't be creating new businesses in the first place. And that's, I think, the real excitement of this activity, that you can make a difference to the world And if you do that and you do it well, you'll make money. But if you start off by saying it's about making money, you probably won't actually succeed as a business. That's a good statement. Yeah, so the social
0: outcome or the actual outcome for the world or the population should be the driver rather
1: than necessarily making money. Absolutely. And I feel very privileged in the sense that in the day job now, almost all the companies I see have that view of life. And to a limited extent, I contradict myself in the sense that I have to get them to think commercially, Mm. but it's thinking about customers, thinking about markets, rather than necessarily thinking about becoming rich. That's probably the key distinction. Excellent. And one or more tips for angels? I think with angels, I would um, suggest a rule of asymmetry where your gut instinct is concerned. And by that, I mean, don't necessarily trust your instincts if you feel very positive about a proposal. If you are feeling very positive, that's a very good reason to do even more due diligence. But if, on the other hand, you're looking at a proposal, you think it's not one for me, or you don't think it's right, Mm. you're probably right to think that. And even if somebody else, another fund, another angel, does go on to make it a success, if you didn't believe in it in the first place, you would have been the wrong investor for that company. Yes, the fear of missing out. We talked
0: about that in the previous podcast. That's very important. It's very important to learn that.
1: Yeah. So even though other people might be getting a little bit carried away, if you don't get it, then probably don't participate. And then don't regret, should no. it be a success. No.
0: Okay. We, I had that with SwiftKey some time ago, but right. that's another story. So what have you learned? You say you've you been involved in the financing early stage. I mean, I've been involved as an entrepreneur for nearly 40 years, but the finance and the early stage, for 20 years. What have you learned? So if you were to go back and tell your 30-something-year-old you know, self something, what would that be?
1: The first really serious thing, and this came up with the publications about Silicon Valley and then later Germany and Israel, is that everything, one way or another, is connected to everything else. And I think in the early days when I got involved in this activity and I was partly doing policy work and working with government, the view tended to be, right, okay, this part of the country needs to be entrepreneurial. Let's put in an incubator or let's put in a seed fund because we've seen the correlation elsewhere. We've seen what goes on in Silicon Valley. We've seen what goes on in Israel. If you've got incubators, seed funds, that sort of thing, you will develop an entrepreneurial ecosystem. That's not enough. You need to do, so to speak, the middleware as well, which is people. You've got to change the culture. You've got to do it for a long time. And you have to recognize that you need all the components of the value and the funding chain. It wouldn't, for instance, be enough just to put in a venture fund. The venture investors need people to feed them good deals. So you need to have a very strong background in angel investment. You need to have somewhere that the businesses can grow into. Mm. And finally, on that idea, I think there's the role that government and regulation can play. I doubt we'd be having this conversation If it hadn't been the case that something like 20 years ago, the tax rules started to change, which made angel investment slightly less painful as an activity. Because there are tax breaks with things like the enterprise investment scheme, even if you lose out on most of your portfolio, you've got something to cushion the blow. Likewise, if you go back to what British taxation was like in the 1970s and early 80s, Successful entrepreneurs would not have had the money to reinvest in the next generation of entrepreneurs because of the tax so high. Huge. I remember at, at one point it was ninety-seven percent tax on unearned income. Absolutely. So I know it's difficult to quantify exactly how much of a difference the EIS makes, but schemes like that make angel investment possible. Angel investment makes venture investment possible. Venture investment leads to the creation of new businesses and businesses that will change our society. Yes, and even if they fail, these businesses, they've taught the entrepreneurs something.
0: They've taught they have. they become a serial entrepreneur even if it's a failure, providing that failure is in the open, and that's something I feel very strongly about. Okay, you've done a number of other things. Can we just talk about the ecosystems? Obviously, you had this project a long time ago in the valley, I presume, yes, in the States. Yes. Also, you're quite well known for investigating, researching and writing about ecosystems.
1: Can we just talk a bit about, say, Israel or Singapore? Or By all means. I think the fascination for me of ecosystems is understanding how they work as a whole. And it's a little bit like reading a business called Case Study. In other words, you can't read across directly from one company or one geography to another. But by reading up generally, studying and understanding that goes on somewhere successful, like Singapore or Tel Aviv, you can extract policies, practices, cultures that could be applied elsewhere. And increasingly, I think, in a world where we're moving more and more towards knowledge rather than making in the, in the old-fashioned sense, that will be the dominant strain in society. The puzzle remains for me that... Success seems to breed success. So you have places like Cambridge, which 20 years ago were relatively small as clusters, which have grown and grown. And yes, it would be very difficult to say to a company in Cambridge that wants to expand, why don't you just go 30 miles away? There's something about the nucleus of a cluster that seems to be self-reproducing. And urbanisation
0: is something that's happening more and more throughout the world, isn't it? It is. And it's a similar feeling that people want to live close to each other despite the fact that house prices, transport and
1: potentially space available is reduced in those situations. Yes, very much so. And we've several times surveyed our tenants to say, if, for instance, we had a a follow-on building that was 10 miles away and the rents were half, would you be interested? And on the whole, companies say... They want to squeeze in where the action is, and above all, they want to be with people like themselves.
0: Yes, you say that, but of course, Silicon Valley is something like the same sort of size as London, Cambridge, and Oxford together, isn't it? It it is. 60 miles from 60 miles, I mentioned. That sort of survives, despite that horrendous traffic that one ends up
1: with, as I have
0: done in the past, moving (laughs) around during rush hour.
1: I think probably two points come out of that. The first one is that as a general rule, Silicon Valley is almost impossible to compare with anywhere else. More specifically, if you were thinking, could we do around here what's happened around Menloy Park? Could we spread the Cambridge effect to 50 miles? I think that would destroy some of the creativity of Cambridge. There's something about this place where you're probably no more than two phone calls away from the person you want to reach, as well as that sense of it being not nearly as concreted over as (laughs) as <laughs> Route 101, yes. that means that we're very, very good at doing the startups. and maybe we should accept that the idea that a lot of policymakers have that we should be creating an Apple or an Amazon around here is not the right thing to do. We can build companies to the point where they employ a few hundred people, and then maybe they have to go somewhere else. Yeah, good question. There's a lot of philosophy behind that. There's a lot of work
0: going on in Cambridge, which I'm involved with and you're involved with independently on that. So you've
1: also written one or more books, haven't you? Yes. And the one that leaps to mind is called Show Me the Money. And that first came out, ooh, four and a half years ago, partly because I was approached by our mutual friend, Alan Barrell, who'd been asked to write a book that was about entrepreneurial finance for entrepreneurs. And um, Alan wanted a partner in crime, so he involved me and Martin Rigby from ET Capital. And... In putting it together, I was drawing on a lot of the work that you and I did together with the programme that we ran for three or four years here in the Innovation Centre. Understanding Understanding Finance finance Business. business. Yes. And it seemed a shame that so much of that know-how, which had really only been summarised on the slides that we used to torture the participants with, shouldn't be perpetuated in a book so that the slides got turned into connected prose. And it, it was a delight to find that the first print run, which wasn't massive. I think it was like 3,000 copies sold out within a year. So we had to do a, a second edition that brought in things like crowdfunding, right. you know, which had only really just taken off at that point. And then we got translated into uh, simplified Chinese. So there's a huge market out there of people in China reading about how British companies raise money. Um, I hope we managed to abstract the fundamental principles enough. So David, is there anything else you'd like to say before we wind this up? I think the one other. General observation that I've found to be true over 20-something years is the importance of Hofstetter's law. In other words, everything always takes longer than you will think, even when you factor in Hofstetter's law. I think just about every startup I've worked with thought it was going to raise money within six months and it took nine months, thought it was going to get its product out in two years and it took three years, thought it was going to raise its next round the following year, but it had to mark time and so on and so on. So Hofstetter's law, I think, is something that any entrepreneur needs to take into account when they're planning. And we'll put
0: something in the show notes about a link to Hofstetter's law. So just before we close, what are you
1: going to be doing in 10 years' time? Have you any idea? (laughs) Gosh, I think in 10 years' time, I would love to be doing more of the same, but I would uh, imagine by then I might have slipped back more towards being a part-time investor rather than a full-time incubator manager. I wouldn't say it's a young man's game running a business incubator, but sometimes you do feel it's a question of the mileage as much of the years. Excellent.
0: So thank you very much, David. You did me a great favour when I moved back to Cambridge in 2004 to actually allow me to be a mentor on the programme, which was paid for by the local regional development agency. That gave me the access to the various people in the community because that was an important part of where I've got to here. So I owe you a tremendous amount for doing that. Thank you, David. I
1: think we've had more out of you, Peter, than you had out of us. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to another Investor Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, InvestorInvestor.com, or via a number of online podcast platforms. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content.